Okay, so I'm at first. I'm gonna have to merge you with my grandfather, okay. my grandparents. Okay, hold on. Pop up, you there? I'm here. The other day, a work colleague was kind enough to lend me a member of his family. Okay, just one more second. Pop-ups? I'm here. Norman Shulman is a retired grocery store owner. He's also the granddad of Todd Shulman, a producer here at HyperObject Industries, Adam McKay's award-winning production company. HyperObject produces just so much quality entertainment, including the podcast you're listening to right now. Um, yeah. Norman lives with his wife in Weston, a town in Florida. He's 93 years old. We have, have to have a very wonderful life. We live in a uh, independent living facility, and it's uh, upgrade. You know, we have uh, dinner plans, and we play cards this afternoon. So uh, we're busy. We got in touch with Norman because we wanted to ask him about something he bought into almost 80 years ago when he got his first job at a toy factory back when he was a teenager, and for him, everything was new. You fill out a papers and you get uh, a social security number. I knew that when I was 65, I would be getting back some of the money that I put in. As it turns out, I think I made money on the deal because I'm 93, and I guess they don't figure you will live that long. Norman's talking about paying into the government social security fund, which he started doing as a teenager. And as Norman says, begins to pay in your mid-60s. Back in 1935, when Norman was five years old, President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act and changed the way everyone in the United States thinks about retirement. Social Security was, in many ways, an idea prompted by the stock market crash of 1929, the worst financial calamity in the country's history. More than anything, Social Security was supposed to keep people from falling into poverty late in life. Today, millions of people like Norman receive payments from the program. It's as much a part of the social fabric as the highway system or the postal service. Kind of like the guardrails of American life. It gives you that little added security. Let me put it this way. It doesn't hurt having the Social Security. That's one way to look at it. Here's a slightly different one. (laughs) Just out here repping Gen Z. Let me introduce you to Bridget Foster. She also works at HyperObject, but she's not related to Norman, and she's not 93. She's 25. Do you ever consider going into Adam McKay's office and taking one of the cards off the wall, the the basketball cards? No, I am actually slowly taking them down and replacing them with uh, cards I've made of myself. So eventually they'll all be gone and just be of me. That's the best networking tip I think I've, I've ever heard. <laughs> As a working American employee, Bridget's also paying into Social Security, just like Norman used to. But she's many decades away from ever seeing any of that money. And she's spending about as much time worrying about it as you'd expect. This is so weird asking a 25-year-old this, because when I was 25, my answer would have just been like, no, what the hell are you talking about? Like, But, but do you have any sort of plan for that that stage of your life beyond like i hope social security kicks in are you working on like a retirement plan or i would say no what the hell are you talking about (laughs) it's not something i think of it's probably the the gen z nihilism in me where i'm just thinking i have money now that i'm gonna use for what i need it for now and i'm not really concerned about retirement i'm also just hoping maybe i'll win the lottery so i won't i won't need to worry about it look This isn't some get-off-my-lawn segment. 
Bridget is smart as hell, but she's also part of a generation that is watching in real time as their futures get mortgaged by the generations that came before them, from the climate to the economy to this thing called social security. See, I don't even know if you have to like, do you apply for social security or like, does it just happen when you retire? And do you, I, I don't even know what I don't know about social security. Sometimes when we're doing an episode on something that's going wrong in America, and let's be honest, there's not exactly a shortage of subject matter on that front, we have to deal with this phenomenon of invented calamity. For example, like in our previous episode on libraries, there is no epidemic of librarians trying to groom kids with sexy books or whatever. That's just some nonsense a bunch of right-wingers invented because they want to ban books. But Social Security is an interesting case, because just about everyone we spoke to on all sides of the ideological spectrum for this episode agrees that if nothing is done, the whole system is going to collapse. Actually, that's not true either. But it is very likely that if something drastic doesn't change, Social Security will at least become a much more decrepit version of the program we know now. This government initiative that for almost a century has provided relief for millions of seniors, as well as bereaved or disabled Americans, is facing a deeply uncertain future. Now, there are some folks, including lawmakers, who are trying to do something about Social Security. But for the most part, politicians tend to treat the issue the way they seem to treat so many issues, as a time bomb to be ignored, because when it finally blows up, it'll be some future generation's problem. Today we walk through two very different visions for Social Security, and meet the people pushing for them. It turns out that this seemingly boring government program Bridget had to Google before our interview can tell you a lot about where this country's going, and what it might one day see vanish. This is Without. I'm Omar Alakad. So there's this really pretty hotel in Mount Hood, which is uh, about an hour drive east of Portland, Oregon. It's called the Timberline Lodge. And even if you haven't been there, there's a pretty good chance you've seen it. Um, You know all the exterior shots of the Overlook Hotel, the fictional place where Jack Nicholson loses his mind in The Shining? That's the Timberline. One of the things that makes it special is that it was essentially a make-work project during FDR's presidency. It fell under the purview of this thing called the Works Progress Administration. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Oregonians, the president, I am here to dedicate Timberline Lodge, Mount Hood National Forest, as a monument to the skill and faithful performance of the Works Progress Administration. In the wake of the Great Depression, the government realized they needed to create jobs, not just for the very existential reason that people need money to live, but also because a lot of folks, unemployed and dejected, felt no sense of protection or purpose at all. There was a real uncertainty gripping the country, And it was an uncertainty that FDR himself recognized in a speech two years earlier. Civilization of the past hundred years 
with its startling industrial changes, has tended more and more to make life insecure. In a way, Social Security shares some roots with the same kinds of policies that made the Timberline Lodge happen. Young people have come to wonder what would be their lot when they came to old age. It seems to me that if the Senate and the House of Representatives in this long and arduous session had done nothing more than pass this Social Security Act, the session would be regarded as historic for all time. And it is considered historic, because Social Security is more than just a money thing. What Social Security is, we don't often call it this, it's wage insurance. It's insurance against the loss of wages in the event of death, long-term disability, um, or retirement, old age. Part of what Social Security is supposed to provide, as its name suggests, is the intangible benefit of security, a sense of peace of mind. This is Nancy Altman. She's the president of a group called Social Security Works. She's also worked in a lot of other places, at Harvard and alongside Alan Greenspan. In other words, she knows more about Social Security than just about anyone you're likely to meet. She's been doing this for half a century, long enough that she now qualifies to collect Social Security. And yet, even Nancy, when she was first starting out, had about the same level of awareness of Social Security as Bridget from earlier. Not much. When I was starting out in my late 20s and 30s, I was told that I would not get Social Security, that it was going bankrupt, it wouldn't be there for me. And it was these old greedy geezers. They were victimizing their children and grandchildren. The only thing that's happened is that time has passed, and now I'm a greedy geezer, and it's my children and grandchildren are the ones who are being victimized. So one of the easiest ways to think about how much Social Security has changed the entire trajectory of American life is to consider what that life was like before this program came into being. People worked as long as they could. They, you know, essentially worked until they died. If they couldn't continue to work, they generally moved in with their adult children. And those who did not have children, they literally went to the poorhouse. And she does mean literally. In 1935, every state but New Mexico had poor farms, and the people who were in them overwhelmingly um, living independently for most of their lives. But when they became old, either for health reasons or for a variety of other reasons, they no longer could work. And they literally went to the poorhouse. Basically, it was a place to, to wait until you died. You know that board game, Monopoly? Well, besides being a terrible board game, It's also a piece of living memory of what Social Security did, the way it changed how Americans think about working life. It's all right there in that free parking spot in the corner, which was only introduced to the game in 1935. Prior to 1935, that exact square on the board was called the poorhouse. And so I love the idea that we've gone from the poorhouse to free parking. All of this comes about in the early decades of the 20th century, a time of what turned out to be an incredible social movement in this country, a real push for reform. For example, the first proposals for state-based health insurance come about in the 1910s, although World War I kind of sidelines a lot of that. A decade or so later, states start pushing stronger child labor laws, slowly eliminating the long-standing practice of having kids, some as young as four years old, working in factories and farms. 
By the time Social Security arrives in 1935, there's already been a wave of social change related to labor and communal well-being. But that doesn't mean the program is without detractors. And those detractors, well, they're overwhelmingly from one side of the political spectrum. In 1936, the Republicans ran strongly against Social Security because contributions were about to be paid, but benefits weren't going to be received for a number of years. Republicans said, you're paying this tax, you may never see benefits. You know, if Congress feels like giving you the benefits, you'll get them, but otherwise you'll never see them. But the Republicans lost that early battle. And the program didn't just survive, it grew. Four years after Social Security was enacted in 1935, spousal and family benefits were added, as well as life insurance. In 1956, disability insurance was added. Then, a bit under a decade later, Medicare, which was originally intended to be a first step in what we would now call Medicare for all, universal public health care, essentially. But in the 1970s, the right-wing opposition to Social Security starts to take a much more solid and well-funded form. A number of think tanks and foundations, all bankrolled by a billionaire friend of Richard Nixon with the somewhat unlikely name of Pete Peterson, start pushing this idea that Social Security, it's absolutely great, really great. But, you know, we just can't afford it. By the way, for reference, Right now, employers and employees split the bill for Social Security. The employee contributes 6.2% of their paycheck, and the employer matches that amount. But one of the reasons opponents of Social Security settle on this kind of, hey, we just can't afford it messaging, is because for the most part, these programs are popular, really popular. And while the Republican Party is still overwhelmingly keen on dismantling a lot of Social Security, Promising to kill a program that a lot of older folks depend on to live isn't exactly the best way to win elections. Sometimes they talk about process, like, you know, make us vote on Social Security again every five years or make it discretionary. And one of the big ones is to set up a commission. It's a way to go behind closed doors to avoid political accountability. Maybe so, but tactics and sentiment aside, there's still this small issue of numbers. As we record this, Social Security is scheduled to pay out roughly $1.4 trillion this year. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, if the gap between what Social Security spends and what it takes in continues to grow at the current pace, it's going to exhaust its trust funds by 2033. That's more than a decade before I qualify for the damn thing. More importantly, it's many decades before Bridget and her generation see a dime from Social Security's retirement benefits. So, something needs to happen. Problem is, that something is very, very different, depending on who you talk to. More on that after the break. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. 
Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Social security is broken. Welcome back. It is not a good deal for younger and current generations, and policymakers have no credible plan to fix it. If you want to hear the conservative position on Social Security in a nutshell, Rachel Gresler has it for you. I am a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and I focus on retirement policy, Social Security, disability insurance, and also labor policies. Before we go on, I want to take a few seconds of our precious airtime to say something about the Heritage Foundation. We reached out to Rachel because she works on issues related to Social Security. And for our entire interview with her, she was very professional. And even though I didn't really agree with much of what she said, she made her points and she seemed quite reasonable. Then a couple of weeks after our interview, the Heritage Foundation put out a statement saying that no Palestinians should be allowed to migrate to the United States. And that this country would be committing suicide by letting any of them in. Now, I don't particularly care how you feel about what on this side of the planet is vaguely called the Middle East crisis, and God knows what level of horror we'll all be witnessing by the time this episode comes out. But I just want you to imagine the reaction if the Heritage Foundation had said the same thing about literally any other ethnicity, nationality, or minority group on Earth. It's wildly xenophobic and racist, and I can't just kind of let it pass by. So that's what the Heritage Foundation is. But back to Social Security and the problems Rachel has with it. No, I think the concept started out with good intentions, and it was supposed to be a relatively limited program aimed at preventing poverty and old age. But it was always supposed to be a relatively small program. By which Rachel means limited in scope. Back when it was introduced, FDR said of Social Security, we can never ensure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life but we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection. Hello? Now might be a good time to get into how Social Security works today and why it's so easy for conservatives to describe the program as broken. For that, we should probably switch to someone with a more neutral point of observation. Well, Social Security is the biggest social welfare program in America. It's one of the biggest social programs in the world. This is Ed Berkowitz. Ed's a professor emeritus of history and public policy at George Washington University, and he specializes in the history of Social Security. Um, it, it pays benefits to more people than live in the state of California. In other words, a lot of people rely on this program. So it's a very much a, a going concern. And some people feel that the program depends on money that we pay in as taxes into this trust fund. There won't be enough money, basically, to pay full benefits in another decade or so. Because while Americans continue paying into Social Security, the money's being spent faster than those taxes can cover. And if that trend continues, eventually the shortfall starts to limit how much of the benefits can actually be paid out. But there's still a big difference between a program that's unable to pay full benefits and a program that can't pay any benefits at all. In the next decade, we're going to have to depend on just the money that comes in from your paying Social Security tax and your employer paying Social Security tax. Because again, what employees pay into their future Social Security, their employers match. And it's also a problem because the things that you can do to 
make the program solvent are things like raising taxes. Nobody wants to see that because the taxes are already high. Another thing you could do is reduce benefits, but if nobody nobody wants to do that. Um, so there's no obvious way to solve the problem. And all of those things are kind of like boiling up like, like, like water on the stove. So what do you do? Well, if you're most politicians, you do nothing. One of the few things I imagine Rachel from the Heritage Foundation and Nancy from Social Security Works would agree on is that it's a lot easier to talk about fixing Social Security or ending it or making any changes to it at all when you're not trying to get elected. Here's Rachel Gresler again. You know, I worked on the Hill for seven years and nobody wants to talk about Social Security. It's just so difficult. It's the third rail of politics. So the longer that policymakers wait, whatever the compromise is going to be, if it's increasing taxes, reducing benefits, changing the retirement age, you're going to have to do that by a significantly greater margin if you wait longer. And herein lies one of the biggest issues. The longer we do nothing, the less money there is in the pot. Add that to a growing and aging population, meaning more people collecting Social Security, and the problem becomes harder and harder to fix. As Ed put it in our interview, it's sort of like a pilot flying a plane. You can make little adjustments at the beginning of the flight, and that can make a difference between going to LA or going to San Francisco. But the closer you get to the destination, the bigger those adjustments have to get in order to achieve the same result. And yet... And yet, politicians are not willing to address it, because as soon as they get criticized and think that they're going to lose some votes, they turn back and will say, oh, so we promise we're not going to touch that. But the reality is, is by saying, I'm not going to do anything, you are hurting people more. Those people being any future American hoping to actually receive Social Security. So Rachel has her own plan. It can be called the sort of moderate conservative approach to Social Security reform. It starts with raising the retirement age, Rachel suggested to 70. She also wants to raise the average retirement payout, which currently sits at a bit over $20,000 annually. Where that money is going also changes, with less paid out to higher income recipients and more paid out to those in the lower income brackets. But there's one more change, and it is not minor. In keeping with how free market think tanks tend to view just about every issue, Rachel would allow people to just walk away from the government program. Social Security becomes, in effect, optional. For the worker who decides to opt out, the reality is, is that the overwhelming majority of them, if not every one of them, can actually do better off by having half as much of their forced Social Security taxes be invested in something that earns a positive rate of return as they would get from Social Security. Say, with a life insurance policy or by playing the stock market or collecting beanie babies, whatever you want. It's a free country. So it's kind of like a way to both improve the program solvency, but also to let workers have that option to actually see something that grows in value over time. In this vision for Social Security, even if you bail, your employer would still have to pay their half of the contribution to the program, which presumably is what's supposed to keep it afloat, even as fewer people pay in. But here, Rachel makes two really big, really hypothetical claims about what happens next. The program as a whole would be as well off, if not better, for those who stay in it. And those who step out of the program and are saving on their own are going to have the equivalent of Social Security. And there you have it. 
The sales pitch for shrinking social security, for letting folks ditch it and invest the money on their own, and generally, according to Rachel's math, lowering the cost of the entire enterprise. Right now, Social Security is taking 12.4% of workers' paychecks. If you made these three changes, you would get it down to 10.1%. So it's a plan of a sort, albeit not one for every side of the political spectrum. Take this congressman, for example. Do you see these campaigns sort of working, I guess? No, I don't see them working. As you'd expect, not everyone is on board with Rachel's pitch. But is there another vision? One that maybe bolsters what exists rather than tosses out the system FDR put in place? Well, yes, there is. After the break, a congressman and a dogged little bill that refuses to die. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back. This is the easiest guy to talk to in the entire United States Congress, is John Larson. It'd be nice if all of us had a cheerleader in our corner like this Democratic representative, Tom Susie. That said, we're not here for Susie. We're here for the guy he's repping. You know how much time and effort he has put in to getting us to this point here today? He's put years of effort building support, looking at the numbers, trying to make up a, a, a plan that will find the softest edges on a difficult problem and building a a constituency of people throughout this country to support this idea. The idea Susie's talking about is a social security reform bill from Representative John Larson, a Connecticut Democrat. Larson called the bill Social Security 2100. Now, it's not nearly as ambitious as, say, what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have put forward. Their bill takes on prescription prices, comprehensive health care, long-term housing, you name it. Larson's plan is way more focused. Its objective is solely to improve Social Security's current state. When the congressman launched the bill, he had already gathered more than 200 co-signers. When I was a kid, my dad passed away due to an unexpected cancer diagnosis. I was the daughter of a domestic worker. And Social Security checks helped my family through. One of the co-signers was New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. After her father died, her family received survivor Social Security, which is paid in cases where a recipient with dependents passes away before reaching retirement. It's why my brother and I were able to go to college. It's why I felt confident while I was at college that my mom would be able to have something to eat. And to have that social safety net 
isn't just good for us individually for peace of mind. It helps us feel like we are part of a society that respects our elders and values our vulnerable. When Larson introduced the act in 2019, it included 13 major points. Among them were things like ending the five-month waiting period for disability benefits. Social Security's lowest payout level is also currently below the poverty line. The bill would raise it to 125% of that line, effectively paying the poorest recipients a little bit more than the government's own definition of destitution. When Larson toured the bill around the country, he would bring a Starbucks coffee cup with him. It was a prop, and he'd use it when making the claim that the increase in Social Security taxes needed to do all of this would be incredibly small. Basically, like taking away the cost of a single latte from the average worker's paycheck every nine weeks. But then, during the hearing for the bill, Republicans brought out their own prop. A comically oversized coffee cup. The insinuation being that this plan would actually entail a massive tax increase. Yeah, this is really how important policy decisions are made in this country. Anyway, the act hasn't passed. It continues to hang in committee. Congressman, how are you? I'm great, Omar. How are you? After reading up on his bill, I figured it would be worth speaking with Larson. From uh, Connecticut's uh, first congressional district, representing the first congressional district in Connecticut. Obviously, public services were a huge part of your life from, from the word go. I'm wondering how that impacts the way you think about something like Social Security. You know, you grew up in, in a federal housing project. Yep. Place called Mayberry Village in uh, East Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, seven brothers and sisters, and the tip of the hat to my parents, the greatest generation. They stayed in the community they, that they grew up in. My mother, you know, was, you know, always a champion of making sure that you're doing the right thing on behalf of people who need it the most. I Maybe I'm being cynical here, but but when I think of the federal government right now, I don't exactly think of stability. Compared to previous eras, does this feel like a more or less challenging situation to try and get something done? The last time Congress took this on was in 1983 because it was at a crisis point. It's at another crisis point. Basically, no one has made any major adjustment to Social Security in four decades. And today, four years after Larson first introduced and failed to pass his Social Security 2100 bill, the crisis has only grown. So Larson's made changes to the bill, reintroducing it again in 2021, again to no avail, and once more this past July. While a lot of his conservative counterparts are still probably never going to vote for this thing, Larson's still hopeful both parties can solve the issue before the 2033 deadline arrives. Why do you think that there's been so little movement on something that's such a ubiquitous and such a sort of central program in this country? Is it just sort of one of those third rail things where no one wants to talk about it? How is it a third rail if what you're doing is helping out more than 70 million Americans? You know, Omar, I know you know this, but more than 40% of all Americans rely on Social Security as their main source of income. More than 5 million Americans who have paid into the system get below poverty level checks from the federal government for Social Security. That's flat out wrong. 
And the only one that can change that is the United States Congress. It's not, cannot be done by executive order. The Supreme Court's not going to intervene. This has to be voted on by Congress. And what do you think is stopping this from moving forward? The one thing you learn in the legislative process is you have to be persistent. And the only way you're going to get this passed is to be persistent and in people's faces and saying, hey, yeah, why hasn't Congress done its job? If nothing is done, if we continue to be in the situation where there is no sort of, you know, what's basically not happened for the last 50 years continues not happening, what does Social Security look like for Americans in 15, 20, 25 years? In 10 years, it'll be reduced 20% across the board. 40% of all Americans, their only form of subsistence in retirement is Social Security. So that's uh, 40% of the American people that will be living uh, in below poverty conditions. I don't know if you've ever spent much time talking to politicians, but one of the few traits they all seem to have in common is this nearly deranged level of stubbornness. And Congressman Larson, he's a politician. We're not going to let go of this, as long as I'm able to take a breath anyway. Now, there's a world in which all of this works out. In fact, that's supposed to be the world we live in. Both parties are supposed to work together. They're supposed to compromise. They're supposed to find solutions. Gentlemen, and Mr. Brady and I continue to During a hearing for Larson's bill back in 2019, this guy named Stephen Goss was testifying. He works for the Social Security Administration, and he was asked a pretty straightforward question. Mr. Goss, let me ask you, have you found a straight path forward with any of your work here in all the years you've been here? I'm sorry, have you found a straight path forward on any issue that you've worked on since you've been here? A straight path forward? Yeah. Uh, Typically not. (laughs) I I guess I would not, not to to be too much out of of my realm, but uh, it is one of the beauties of our society and of our government that we have at least two major parties that can debate and discuss things and come to a conclusion that we could all best live with. Exactly right. That's the idea, right? debate, discuss, set aside differences, and find the best compromise. Now, does that actually happen? Well, the Republican-led House just elected its most right-wing speaker after a period of total chaos that threatened to basically shut down an entire arm of the government. So, you know. Nonetheless, Larson is hoping President Joe Biden and the Republican Party will at least make Social Security a central issue in the upcoming election. He's not giving up. In part because if he does, we're all one step closer to ignoring Social Security until it crumbles, or at the very least, becomes a shell of the program it used to be, and potentially millions of the most vulnerable people in this country lose a means of making ends meet. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Without is produced by HyperObject, the company run by Adam McKay. Now, Adam is, of course, the greatest cinematic genius of his, or really any generation. By which I mean, he signs my paychecks. But this looming social security crisis is kind of reminiscent of the comet in Adam's last movie, Don't Look Up. It's just another thing that's been screaming warning signs at us for decades. A thing with a solution. A bunch of solutions. But solutions are hard. They require work. And so we, well we don't look up. 
until the comet crashes, a whole bunch of people suffer, and the rich probably go to outer space or something. It's actually really sad how well that analogy works, now that I think about it. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar el It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Emil Klein, with editorial assistance from Abby Fentress Swanson. Our associate producers are Fendel Fulton and Kendra Hanna, with production support from Zaley Mahone and field recording from Andrew Logan. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners, and our research is by Sarah Mathis. Thank you so much for your patience with us, Norman. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. Anything for my grandson. Bye. Thank you, Papa. Love you. Love you. Bye. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>